Uh, good morning, family. Uh, as Brother Reggie already said, my name is uh, Bruce. I'm one of the apprentices here. Uh, it is my singular privilege uh, to bring God's word to us this morning uh, as we continue with the series that we've been going through that is titled From Old to New to You. And I want to start off with a question as we begin this morning. Uh, when you hear the word sin, what comes into your mind? For some of us, we of course think about lying, stealing, cheating, and all those cardinal vices that we were taught were bad from a young age. Some of us, on the other hand, might even go further and think about particular people that we associate with particular misdeeds or particular sins. We think about the people that have hurt us with their words or the parent that was absent or overbearing or the child who doesn't listen or doesn't comply or the spouse that is unfaithful. The reality is when we have a conversation about sin, we all have something to say. Why? I think we all have something to say because when we look around us and we look within us, we're able to see the brokenness, not only out there in the world, but also inside of us. And it is clear, friends, that something is wrong with us and something is wrong with our world. We see the symptoms of sin all around us. But of course, we know that things were not always this way, right? We heard last week from Pastor Nick how God created everything and it was good. In fact, it was very good. Man and God in perfect unison. Mankind, that is Adam and Eve at this point, enjoying the highest form of a perfect relationship. Man is working and keeping the garden as he had been commanded to do by God. There is a peace in the beginning, what is known as shalom, that we see in the first two chapters of Genesis, a, a perfect peace where God and man, man and man and man and the rest of the created order exist in perfect harmony. I love to think about this as a piece of sweet-sounding music. The rhythm is perfect. The volume is just loud enough. The cadence is impeccable. I don't know about what other people do, but we black folk, we make the stank face, like when, when music sounds good. This is what I want to think about when I think about the, the perfect rhythm that we see in Genesis. The groove is just great, making the stank face. And friends, this is the world as God intended it to be. But Genesis 3 happens. This sweet sounding piece of music is disturbed by a sudden loud bang of drums and incoherent string instruments. What was rhythmic is now replaced with discord. Where there was cadence, there is chaos. Where there was peace, there is pandemonium. We see Eve getting deceived by the serpent to eat of the tree which God had said they should not eat. 
and both she and Adam eat this fruit in a vile act of disobedience. And since that day, friends, the world has never been the same. I want you to notice what transpires after the fall. Look at Genesis 3 verse 7 with me. It reads, Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Where there was innocence, sin brings fear, guilt, shame. The very, thing, the very first thing that Adam and Eve do after they sin against God is they hide from him. But soon after that, they become designers. They take leaves and make coverings to cover themselves up, to cover up their fear, to cover up their shame, to cover up their guilt. And guess what? We too have been doing the same ever since. Our natural response when confronted by our own nakedness and sinfulness in front of a perfect and holy God is that we want to cover it up. We want to sow our own Louis fig leaves to cover up our shame, to cover up our sin, to cover up our guilt. Disobedience to God led to fractured shalom or peace. Enmity with God and men and souls. Look at what happens next in verse 11. He, talking about God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave me, she made me eat the fruit, and I ate it. Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. But friends, not only is shame and guilt the, a consequence of sin, but we see the blame game beginning. Look at verse 12 again. Adam is in fact blaming God for giving him a wife who made him sin. This woman that you gave me, she made me do it. Isn't that the natural way that we respond when confronted by our own sinfulness? God, this wife or husband that you gave me, she didn't meet or he didn't meet my needs, so I went ahead and cheated on her. God, this brother that you placed in my life is a jerk, so I went ahead and punched him in the face. Not only does guilt and shame fill the crevices of human hearts, but blaming God and other people becomes the norm as a response to our sin. We see even Eve blaming the serpent. And poor guy, he doesn't have anyone to blame. What we see here, friends, is the shattering of shalom or the shattering of peace. And sin shatters the whole scope of the created order in three movements. We see mankind and God being at odds. God curses mankind. He says the, the, the woman would uh, suffer greatly in childbirth. The man would labor and you'd work a ground that is cursed with thorns and thistles. 
We see the second movement, how man and his wife are at odds. Remember when Adam is first introduced to Eve, he begins to sing the first R&B song, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone, she is mine. But after the fall, she is the one that you gave me and that has made me sin. So man and his wife are at odds. But the third movement is man is at odds with the created order. God pronounces a curse between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And since that day, friends, we haven't been able to pet lions without the potential of being mauled to death. This is what Paul talks about in Romans, when, in Romans 8 when he talks about creation groaning for the manifestation of the sons of God. There is enmity between mankind and the rest of the created order. Disobedience to God led to a fractured shalom. Since the fall, broken vertical relationship with God has been primarily and chiefly expressed through broken relationship with each other where God began by saying it is not good for man to be alone. Sometimes when we read the Old Testament, I often think it seems bad for men to be together. We see in Genesis 4, Cain kills his brother Abel. And when God asks him, where is your brother? He responds, am I his keeper? Am I his keeper? And we spew various renditions of the same rhetoric even today. Why, why should I care about this guy or girl? Can, can he or she take care of himself? Doesn't he have a mind? Doesn't he have hands and feet? Am I his watcher? I'm not my brother's keeper. We see corruption and dysfunction taking a hold of people as we read the pages of the Old Testament. Men in rebellion with God. Men fighting, committing grave injustices, warring against each other. Death, pain, confusion characterize humanity as we flip through the pages of the Old Testament. And friends, this is the story of the Israelites. It's the story of the nations all around them. And the prophets of God prophesy of an impending judgment that was to come. And the prophets prophesy of an impending judgment because of two things. Firstly, they are in direct rebellion to God, which has spewed into interpersonal and intergroup conflict. God would judge offenders fiercely. Here's an example from Isaiah chapter 1 verse 4. It reads, Ah, sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. The people of God forsake the Lord, and in turn, they begin to act wickedly towards one another. Look at verse 16 of the same chapter. Wash yourselves, 
Make yourself clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's case. And as one reads the pages of the Old Testament, it is strikingly clear that humanity is not basically good with hints of bad apples here and there. Humanity is not basically good. In fact, it is very clear that humanity is basically bad with occasional moments where God shows his grace on a, on a few people who themselves are not necessarily perfect. It is therefore, my friends, inconsistent with the Bible when one suggests that we can have a utopia on the side of eternity where human beings are able to find peace and be reconciled merely through social action or political intervention. I think social action and political intervention have a place, but it is woefully short-sighted to simply address human conflict merely through these means. And in the same light, it is woefully inconsistent with the Bible when believers want to pretend like we already live in the new heavens and the new earth, where sin does not abound, where the, the consequences of past and present sins can just be wished away. Friends, sin affected not only the individual, sin affected the whole of created order. The problem of sin permeates the world extensively since the fall. And this shouldn't surprise any student of the Bible. And in reality, this is what makes reconciliation necessary. Amid all this conflict between God and humans, humans towards humans, we see hope promised. A Messiah who would come and through his blood would bring peace between man and God and create order and deal extensively with the problem of sin. In Isaiah 53 verse 5, describing this Messiah, upon him the chastisement of him brought us peace. Therefore, friends, peace and reconciliation between God and man is only possible through the blood of Jesus and true reconciliation between mankind is only possible through the same. True reconciliation, only possible through the same. Colossians 1, 19 through 20, listen to his, these words from Paul. For in him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Talking about Christ. And listen to these words. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood on his cross. Do you see the cosmic scope of reconciliation that is possible in Christ? All things means all things. All things means all things are estranged from him. All things. There's no place in heaven where we could look and say, well, this part doesn't have sin. All things reconciled through him, brought back into 
harmonious relationship with God because sin fractured all things. Family, the problem of sin is so bad that God himself had to come down in the person of his son to fix the problem. We should not reduce this problem. The problem of sin is so bad that it cost God his own begotten son to spill his blood so that we could be reconciled to him and in turn be reconciled to one another. We should not take this for granted. While Billy Joel can bring people from all ethnicities and all backgrounds into the same room for a concert, only Jesus can bring them into the same eternal family. While Delta Airlines can bring all the people with different languages, with different backgrounds into the same plane to take them to the same destination, only Jesus can enjoin their hands to a mission whose ends are of a far greater value. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. It is only through Jesus that the Jew and Gentile can be brother and sister. It is through Jesus that we see in the book of Acts a Philippian jailer, a, a, a government servant, a wealthy woman named Lydia, and a girl who had the spirit of divination becoming the, a part of the same church community in Philippi. It is only through Jesus. In the New Testament, we see three things concerning our Lord Jesus Christ and the subject of reconciliation. Firstly, we see Jesus as a teacher of reconciliation. Matthew 5, verse 23 to 24 reads, these are the words of Jesus. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. I want you to notice his words here. He's saying, if you remember that your brother has something against you, not that you did something to your brother, no. Your brother has something against you. Go and be reconciled to your brother. Jesus echoes the reality that peace with God is most consistently expressed through peace with mankind. As much as depends on you, Paul says, live peaceably with all men. The vertical and horizontal relationships should be characterized by peace and reconciliation. Jesus is saying, even before you offer me worship, consider if you need to be reconciled with your brother or sister first. Friends, this is how high these stakes are. Another example in Luke 17, verse 3, Jesus says, Pay attention to yourself. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. Jesus considered that we would indeed sin against each other. I don't know if you know that. That even as God's people, we actually will sin against each other because we're imperfect. And Jesus know, knows that. But that rebuke, which is a function of truth-telling, would characterize our relationships. And that repentance, which is an admittance of being at fault, that leads to a changed mindset and actions, would warrant forgiveness. 
that feelings of resentment or vengeance will not characterize us towards the people that have sinned against us. For Jesus to love God and to love neighbor, a baseline. Jesus had convictions, but Jesus also had compassion. The ideologies of this present age are so reductionistic when it comes to this. You have on one side people that want to trumpet biblical convictions without any compassion for their neighbors or their enemies. And that, friends, is out of sync with the teachings of Jesus. And on the other hand, you have people that want to parrot Jesus' compassion and yet they want to deny his truths and deny his convictions. And this too is out of sync with his teachings. But not only did Jesus teach on the subject of reconciliation, he also modeled the subject. We see this expressed in his treatment of women. In the beginning, God creates males and females, both different yet both with equal value and equal dignity. But during Jesus' time on earth, women are functionally second-class citizens. They're actually property. After Genesis 3, the value of women diminished, at least in this culture. And Jesus' approach towards women is revolutionary for its era. The way he interacts with them was not characteristic of how men at that time interacted with women. Jesus frequently addresses women in public directly, which was never done. We see him in John chapter 4 when his disciples come to him. They are actually surprised that he's talking to a woman. Jesus addresses women as daughters and as daughters of Abraham. Which, as we read in 2021, it sounds like, yeah, you know, it's nothing. You know, Jesus is just, that's, that's how it was. No, it's, it's very revolutionary for its time. And we see women in the same culture being the very first conveyors of the news of his resurrection. If there was a way to make the resurrection unbelievable, it was to send women to be the first conveyors of the message. But the first conveyors of the message of his resurrection are women. In a culture where the once perfect and beautiful relationship between women and men has been fractured, Jesus demonstrates reconciliation by restoring and acknowledging the dignity and the value of women. He's showing what was in the beginning. He's showing what his disciples should strive for in the now and eventually what will be perfected in the new Jerusalem. Second example of how Jesus models uh, this is the composition of his disciples. Two of Jesus' disciples are pretty interesting. I don't know if you have ever noticed, but there's a, a guy in there named Matthew who's a tax collector and a guy in there named Simon who's called a zealot. If any of Jesus' disciples could be unlikely friends, it was those two guys. Matthew worked for the Roman government and was seen by many as not only a corrupt, but also a participant in the burdensome and overbearing methods of the Roman government. The Roman government was so bad that 
when the Jews are waiting for a Messiah, they are waiting for a political Messiah who will topple the Roman government. So that is Matthew. On the other hand, you have Simon. He's part of a militia of zealous nationalists. It's, it's an actual revolutionary group whose politics are anti-Roman government. They occasionally aspired to wage war against the government and return to the glory days when their culture and their religion ruled. So there you have it, Matthew, Simon, polar opposites of the political spectrum. Yet in Jesus, these two find a place and a reason for peace. They are enjoined to be part of God's family. They get to participate in the greatest mission ever. They get to sit together at the feet of Jesus. They get to serve together. They get to hope together. They get to pray together. I have no reason that, to believe that their political views changed. But I know for sure that their primary allegiance did. In an age where political affiliation has turned to be divisive and has turned to be religious in its nature, I pray this morning that the people of God would find unity in the person and in the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oil and water do not mix. The, the reality of this is actually best expressed uh, when you think about salad dressing. When you put salad dressing on the table, after a while all the ingredients separate, oil and the water and all the spices separate. And in order to bring these two together, one has to shake the bottle and then use the salad dressing. But after a while, after a while, when that bottle is sitting on the table, the ingredients again begin to segregate. They go back to their own neighborhoods. They go back to their separate dorms. They go back to their separate sides of the aisle. They go back because it is intrinsic in their nature that they will not mix. Mayonnaise, on the other hand, does not have to be shaken, although it is mostly comprised of oil and water. Why? Because mayonnaise contains an emulsifier, which is egg. An emulsifier is that which brings two things that would otherwise not be able to mix together. And in mayonnaise, the egg brings together two entities that would not normally mix with one another. The egg is able to infiltrate the ingredients, to infiltrate the water, to infiltrate the oil. And they come together as a solid substance. Friends, our Lord Jesus Christ is an emulsifier who's able to bring people together that otherwise would not normally fit together. Peace and reconciliation with God is only possible through the blood of this Messiah. And true peace with mankind is also only possible through the same. While Jesus taught about reconciliation and demonstrated reconciliation, that still wouldn't be enough. 
we would still be lost in our sins. We would still not love the things of God. We would still struggle to love our fellow human beings and people that are different. So he doesn't only teach, doesn't only demonstrate, but he actually makes a way through his blood. Jesus is the means to reconciliation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 18. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. All this is from God who, through Christ, reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to them the message of reconciliation. Reconciliation is possible, friends, through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Through his blood, we are able to be forgiven of our sins. Through his blood, our sins are washed away. Through his blood, we are made clean. And this is the good news of the gospel, that we who were once enemies of God are able to call him friend. If you're here today and you can clearly see how sin has wrecked your own life and how its consequences are clearly present in your life. Or if you're here and you can see in your heart the kind of enmity and rebellion towards God that you have. I want to tell you that Jesus is extending his hand to you to reconcile. Peace and reconciliation with God and with each other is only possible through his blood. Sin is not your friend. It will separate you from God. It will separate you from your brothers and your sisters. It's not your friend. And there are a couple of implications for us if all this is true. First, if all this is true then, the world cannot set the agenda, the shape, and the basis for reconciliation for the people of God because God has already done so in his word. It, say, it said today that we have social grouping and social organizations that seem to be on the front lines of reconciliatory work when God's people are the ones that have been given the ministry of reconciliation. It seems many times that we are just sitting around being keyboard warriors, commenting on their activities instead of doing the hard work. We have the mandate as God's people to bridge the gap between man and God, but also between man and man. We are a reconciled people of God that can demonstrate what it looks like for people from different places that characteristically wouldn't mix together. We can demonstrate to them what it could look like. Words like justice, moral order, compassion. They are not political words. They are in the Bible. God has something to say about those things. And if you and I are ambassadors for Christ, as 2 Corinthians 5 says, we can stand on the book 
and think and pray and be reconciled and be reconcilers. That's the first implication. Secondly, when it comes to conversations on racial reconciliation or the current political polarization, we should all understand that the issues are complex. But be humble enough to engage our brothers and sisters on the other side for the sake of Christ. When we try to make complicated things too simple, or we try to make simple things too complicated, two things are compromised, truth and compassion. And for a Christian, you cannot compromise either of those two things. Convictions and compassion characterize the Christian. And when we try to simplify things that are complicated or complicate things that are simple, we are bound to compromise either of those. And understanding our own sin, our own brokenness, should humble us enough to give ear, to give space, to give time to our brothers and sisters with whom we are in disagreement with, or most times, I think, we are misunderstanding one another, speaking over one another. Well, one would say, I do not really rock with those Democrats. Oh, I do not really rock with those Republicans. Well, my friend, God didn't rock with you either. You were his enemy. If there is one relationship that could be incompatible, it would have been a fallen human being like yourself and myself being reconciled to a perfect and holy God. We were his enemies, yet he extended his hand to us to be reconciled to him. We can surely put aside our anger, put aside our pride for the sake of Christ and engage others. Face-to-face conversations where, where motives are not assumed, where truth-telling is prioritized, will give fame to our Lord in the face of the watching world. Ephesians 4, 1 through 3, Paul says, I therefore, a prisoner for our Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling which you have been called. With all humility, with all gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another, in love. Listen to verse 3. Eager, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Are you eager to maintain unity? Or we are just going to divide and fight like the rest of the world does? Thirdly, when it comes to interpersonal conflict, be reconciled to your brother and sister for the sake of Christ. It's interesting how Jesus said they will know we are his disciples, not by anything else, but by the love that we have one for another. Because of Christ, Christians can be humble enough and be reconciled to God when relationships are broken. We all contribute to conflict. We can all own our part. We can all seek to reconcile. We can all apologize. And we can all forgive. Lastly, because of Jesus' reconciling work, one day in the new creation, in the new Jerusalem, 
all things will be made new and reconciled to God. John says in Revelation 7, 9 through 10, after this I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. In the new Jerusalem, we will be with all our brothers and sisters from all across time, from all across the world. All kinds of views on politics, all kinds of views on languages, all, ki all, all different languages and different preferences and different interests. But do you know why they will be there? Because just like yourself, they have been reconciled to God through Jesus' blood. And friends, this should fuel our desire to reconcile with our brothers and sisters. In the big scheme of eternity, you have more in common with an old lady from Uzbekistan whose name you do not know, who's actually reconciled to God, than your neighbor from Northeast Ohio who doesn't know the Lord. Why? Because while you will live for at least 90 years or so, as an American in Northeast Ohio, you are going to spend eternity in the city of God, where our ethnicities, where our countries of birth, where our political preferences will have absolutely peripheral importance. One day, that day, we will have a perfect relationship with God once again. One day and on that day, we will have perfect relationships with one another. Shalom shall reign again. Peace shall reign again. The music shall be sweet again. The cadence shall be back again. Isaiah says in Isaiah 11, 7 through 9, the cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. The lion and the the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the wind child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the perfect shall be, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. Perfect relationships between God and man. Perfect relationships between men. Perfect relationship between mankind and the rest of the created order. Peace and reconciliation with God are only possible through the blood of the Messiah. And true peace between mankind is only possible through the same. I long this morning that God would begin a work of reconciliation in our hearts. And I pray that he, he would be able to work the work of reconciliation around us, through us. Let us pray. Lord, we humble ourselves before your word. We can see clearly how sin has left us broken, 
how sin has left us confused, conflicted, in enmity between us and others. But Lord, we see the great hope that we have through your son's name, through his blood. And Lord, help us as ministers of reconciliation to do the work. Help us to proclaim this gospel that is able to reconcile God and man. Help us to demonstrate and model to a watching world what it looks like for people with different persuasions to come together and be united around something of eternal value. Help us, Lord, in these polarized times. Help us, Lord, in these divided times. We love you. We thank you. Through your son's name we pray these things. Amen.